I, I have this theological assumption that Jesus Christ wants to transform not just some facet of our lives, but every aspect of our lives, especially our interior life. He wants to look at the fears, the anxieties, the idols, the values, the priorities that are uh, deep inside of us that are often inconsistent with the way of his kingdom. Hey, thanks for jumping in for this week's episode on the podcast. My name is Jaden. I'm a part of the team here at the Canadian Church Leaders Network. Before I share a bit about today's guest, we will get there. We want to continue to give you some updates and keep you in the fold on our Church Leaders Incubator. As I record this, our team and the 17 pastors who are a part of the incubator just got back from a retreat, like literally yesterday. And these 17 pastors represent different regions, styles, traditions, and expressions. But what they share in common is a desire to honor God for decades of faithful ministry, to lead from a place of character, integrity, and abiding, to grow in their gifting, to understand the call to pastoral ministry in a deeper way, and to learn from others and not to run solo in leadership. And this retreat was framed around the idea that the healthiest ministry flows from a flourishing life. So the goal was to take intentional steps and make considered commitments together in this setting in order to produce that kind of life over time by the help of the Spirit. And all in all, time together was beautiful. So we want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts to those of you who partnered to make it possible. There's so much that God did with your financial generosity. Thank you to those of you that gave and through your prayer. Thank you to those of you that prayed. Really quickly, we want to play a clip from Emma, one of the leaders in the incubator and a pastor here in British Columbia to encourage your heart. Give this a listen. Hi everyone, my name is Emma. I am the lead pastor with my husband at Avant Life Church and we have three campuses uh, in Squamish, North Vancouver and Surrey. And it's been a real privilege to actually be accepted into this incubator. I've really needed an opportunity to extend myself in relationship with people that are doing the journey as well not just the journey of of building a healthy church but building a, a healthy individual within myself and so i just want to thank you guys for your prayers um, i felt them i've received them and um, i'm so grateful for them i want to thank you for sewing into this program this program is so needed it's something that i've so desired and god has really answered one of my prayers by placing me amongst people that uh, are developing me and sewing into me and and sharing around the table with me so um, just really really grateful for that uh, something really special that kind of uh, has been happening over this retreat that we've spent here at Barnabas has been God's really been taking time to to ask me the question what spirit am I doing everything in with all of the things that I'm trying to organize my life around the rhythms uh, that I'm meant to uh, live in like what spirit do I partner with those rhythms and this retreat time has just been a really beautiful moment for me to uh, really check the position of my heart in regards to how I function as a minister um, and so I'm just really blessed and encouraged by this time together um, I'm really looking forward to seeing who I am in two years to come and, and the leader that I am, but but also the wife that I am and, and the mother that I am and the friend that I am. Um, I feel that those, that those parts of me are really being filled up. So I'm really grateful for this opportunity and I just wanna thank you again and, and please keep praying and keep sewing in because I'm benefiting from this and I know many more people will benefit from this as this incubator grows over time. So thank you so much. Uh, we just love you, Emma. Thanks for sharing with us. 
If you're listening to this and you're interested in joining our next intake for the program, uh, just head to ccln.ca slash incubator and fill out our interest form. We'd love to hear from you as we consider the next round of leaders that God wants to gather in the program. Okay, that was a lot. Today's interview is with Rich Velotis. Rich is the lead pastor of New Life Fellowship in Queens, New York, and he stepped into that role after Pete Scazzaro in 2011. And he's a part of the team at Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which provides an incredible library of resources which have profoundly impacted my life, and I'm sure many of you. He is a gifted speaker, writer, and a true pastor to his staff and the congregation at New Life Fellowship. I'm excited for you to listen to Jay's conversation with him. A big thank you to the folks at Trinity Western University for making this episode of the podcast possible. One of the reasons why Trinity Western exists is to see Christian leaders raised up, educated, and equipped. Listening to this, we have people from all sorts of stages in life, and if you're unsure of what's next for you and you're looking for a great place to find that clarity of calling, consider Trinity Western. For example, you can complete their biblical studies and Christian thought program to be shaped and challenged in your discipleship to Jesus, or through their Masters of Arts in Leadership, you can become a skilled leader who is highly needed in today's career marketplace. So to find out more about all the incredible programs they offer and potentially your future, visit their website at TWU.ca. That's TWU.ca. All right, let's jump in with Rich and Jay. Well, hey, Rich, it is so good to be with you today. Thanks for making time to hang out on the podcast. Jason, uh, thanks for the kind invitation and I look forward to a good conversation with you. I'd love to jump into your story. And I saw a post on Twitter uh, just this moment in your life, and uh, if I'm tracking the story right, you know, you came to know Jesus a little later in life, even though you had some church exposure through your childhood. Uh, but there was a season after you came to faith where you're being discipled by your grandfather. And it just really impacted me. I uh, used to spend a lot of time every day after school. I grew up with my grandpa living in our basement suite, and I'd sit with him for hours. And I think that's where I really learned to communicate clearly to adults and learned about faith and business and different things like that. And you had this season. I just wonder if you could take us into that season of life and maybe a little bit about what brought you to faith and then those early discipleship years. Yeah, I, I became a Christian. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, uh, born and raised there. And I, I'm 42 years old. I lived in Brooklyn the first 34 years of my life, the last eight years in Queens. Uh, and as a 19-year-old, found myself uh, coming out of a relationship that didn't work out. Uh, and for a 19-year-old, experiencing anxiety and fear and grief. I remember going home one day uh, after this breakup and uh, heading to my house in Brooklyn and noticing that uh, my four siblings were at this church hmm. uh, down the block from us where we lived. And I, my father was coming off of a hangover. My mother was cooking in the kitchen and I was just so broken up. I thought, let me just go to this church. Although we never went to church, we were just invited that my my, sis, my siblings were invited that day. So I went and uh, it's this storefront Pentecostal Latino church. Uh, they brought in an evangelist who's preaching out of Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, which by the way, it's hard to mess up a sermon on Ezekiel 37. I mean, just, just read the text and people are coming to the altar. And so he's preaching on it. And as he's preaching, my parents walk into the church. They never went mm. to church. And 
my father would say later on that when I left the house, he heard a voice, uh, not quite audible, but deep down in his soul that said, follow him. And so mm. my father got up, followed me to the church and um, with my mother, and he came in with his pajama pants and no socks and sneakers and a tank top and a Mets jacket and a Mets hat and heard this message from Ezekiel 37. And on that one night in 1999, summer in Brooklyn, 15 family members came to Christ. My, wow. My brother, my three sisters, me, my parents, cousins, uncles, aunts. I mean, <clears throat> 15 of us came to Christ uh, in a very, uh, you know, household salvation, biblical kind of a way. And um, a few weeks after that, my grandfather lived just a block down from me. And so very tight-knit family. I'd say within three blocks, we probably have about 20 family members. And I walked down the block to see my grandfather. I would just visit from time to time, but never really have long conversations with him. There was somewhat of a language barrier. But every time I went into his bedroom, he always was, was reading scripture and watching baseball. Mm. And I walk in, I would usually give him a kiss on the cheek, say, hi, grandpa, and then leave. But this time I saw him reading the Bible. And because I had just become a Christian, I said, hey, grandpa, can I ask you a question about the Bible? And he said, why, why don't you sit next to me? And so on the corner of his, uh, you know, edge of his bed, sat down next to him and started asking him just questions about the Bible, what I was reading. And about two hours later, uh, I found myself immersed in deep conversations on mm. prayer and theology. And then he told me, why don't you come tomorrow again? And so I said, all right. So the next day I, I came for two hours and sat with him and had more questions and we did that for a good eight, nine months. He was very ill. And, mm. uh, and at the end of nine, uh, he died April, 7th, April 16th, the day before my birthday. And um, <clears throat> when he, he died, but for eight, nine months, through, uh, four to five times a week, two to three hours each time, I would sit shoulder to shoulder asking him questions about the Bible, prayer. Mm. And he was, uh, I mean... He, he was a scholar. I mean, he was, he loved talking about uh, the Trinity, uh, holiness, prayer, uh, Genesis to Revelation. He was unpacking the scriptures from wow. so journey began as a Christian. Two weeks into my journey, I was being discipled by a man in his upper seventies uh, who had loved the scriptures for many years. That was my entry into the Christian life. And it, it gave me a phenomenal foundation. Mm. Oh, it's such a beautiful picture and just knowing how God's using your life and your family. I just think it's cool how God honors mm. your grandfather and that investment. And I mean, I'm sure the answer is he was, but like he must've been praying, like how did he process seeing so many in the family come to know Jesus in such a radical way? Now, what's really cool about this story is <clears throat> I would say uh, maybe 20 years before that event when uh, all these family members came to Christ, there was a drunk man uh, in front of that same church who was trying to sell some percussion instruments to my grandfather. My grandfather was coming out of the church and that drunk high, he was high on drugs, said, hey, would you like to buy these, these congas, these, this percussion instrument? And my grandfather said, no, we won't buy it, but we could pray for you. So they open up the church door again. They take him to the altar and they start praying for him, you know, and lead him to Christ. And get him into an a, a organization called Teen Challenge in Brooklyn, which deals with people who have drug and yeah. alcohol addictions and such. 
And um, that guy who he led to Christ would actually be the preacher who was preaching Ezekiel 37 some uh, 15, 20 years later. So my grandfather led him to Christ, got him into a drug rehab program. And then that guy came back to preach at the church again to lead a lot of my grandfather's family members to Christ. How cool is that? Dude, that is so special. I love that. I love hearing stories of people coming to know Jesus. I feel like, um, I feel a real longing to see that happen more. And I don't, sometimes I feel like the tone around evangelism has shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of that is as the, as the culture becomes more post-Christian, it creates unique challenges for the journey into faith. And, but I still really believe in those altar call moments. People come to, like invited to give their life to Jesus. And in a moment, even like a mediocre preacher, you know, <laughs> maybe not even the best exposition of the text. What people right. are called to, and I just what I mean, just wonder your reflections on that. As you're leading a church in Queens, and it's diverse, and you've probably got people with Christian background from all over the world, but then also people with no, no exposure to church. Like, how do you make sense of like that evangelistic instinct to invite people in in that in that kind of way? Yeah, for for, for me, I, I think my job every single Sunday, in some form or fashion, is to call people to repentance. And by repentance, sadly, that word is often reduced to some kind of moralism and, you know, change this kind of behavior. And of course, that becomes the fruit of life in God and union with God. But that's not the starting point. The starting point of repentance is coming back and turning into the arms of a loving father, into the arms of Jesus. And so for me, on every Sunday, I'm inviting people to come to Christ Mm. and making a very clear invitation uh, and, but I think it, it, it's how we frame repentance and what does it mean to actually be in relationship with God. And so often I think about so many friends, I was just at a funeral. I, I preached at a funeral last week and I saw a friend that I hadn't seen in many, many years. And I'm thinking, well, I hadn't seen this guy. Uh, uh, he, he met me when I became a Christian for like a day and then I hadn't seen him for 20 years. And I'm thinking, how do I get this guy to say yes to Jesus? You know, and, and part of it is it would, mu- it must begin with reframing what repentance, what salvation is. So, some of, so much of it is when you think of salvation, what do you mean? What do you think? Mm-hmm. And lots of times folks are thinking, at least my friends, I got to stop doing this and change my behavior with that. And it's so moralistic. Um, But if that can be framed in a different way, that the God of the universe longs to have a relationship with you, um, I think can make all the difference in the world. So for Mm. me, it's about reframing what repentance and salvation actually is. Sounds very simple, but um, that's, I I think about this a lot. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a bit about how you found yourself, like I'm hearing you in your 20s, this conversion and time of discipleship, where in the journey did you find yourself connected to new life or on a journey trajectory towards like full-time ministry? Yeah. I mean, right after that, I I went to a Christian college called Nyack College, and then I went to Alliance Theological Seminary. And after graduating from seminary, I started to, I, I worked at some mental health uh, organization as a customer service rep, and then heard that there was this church called Brooklyn Tabernacle uh, that was looking for um, kind of an assistant pastor for a college young adult ministry. And so um, I was hired there. But as I got hired there, I had heard about this book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And as I was working with college students, I just kept giving that book so every college student I met, so they were in a crisis. I say, you got to read this book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And so I, I did that. That's how I first heard about, heard about Pete and New Life Fellowship Church. 
And it just so happened that a mutual friend of ours, Drew, uh, was trying to get his young adult ministry at New Life to connect with my young adult ministry at Brooklyn Tabernacle. And he said, hey, let's do like some big young adult college event. Hmm. And I said, this sounds great. I'm sure my college students would love to meet other college students from other churches. And so by the end of the conversation, Drew and I met in the city for about two hours. And then Drew, in Drew fashion, said, hey, um, we're, we're looking to hire a pastor. Would you be willing to apply for the position? And I had heard about New Life. And I thought, you know, why don't you send me the job description? And Drew sent it about 10 minutes later. And next thing you know, I ended up you know, applying for the position, got the job. Uh, but it happened with that, with, with Drew inviting me to do it. But mm. New Life is very well known in New York City. And uh, 2008, I joined the staff and uh, was very surprised when uh, 2011, they asked me to uh, go through a process to succeed Pete Scazzaro. So mm. I've been in there since the lead pastor for the last eight years, uh, oh. but la- been here for the almost my 14th year now. So mm. that's how I heard about New Life uh, through Pete's book. Uh, for the oh, most man. Uh, I, I know probably everyone, a lot of people listening know, but Pete and his wife, Jerry Cesaro lead ministry called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And for me, the book that I recommend most to pastors is The Emotionally Healthy Leader, yeah. um, which is it's part of that same kind of family of books. And But what's awesome is it, it really addresses the life of the leader. And so for everyone listening, I can't, I can't recommend a book for pastors. Even like some of the stuff he talks about in there, like leading out of your marriage, like that language has infused the way I perceive because my wife and I don't do co-ministry and like some husbands and wives, they're both up there preaching. That's not Rachel's style, but to lead out of our marriage was a new framework. And then also that dual relationships idea in that book where it talks about what do you do when you've got like staff or key volunteers who are also your friends? Yeah. And like, I've never heard of it more well articulated than that. Dude, so tell me about working with Pete and then like, tell me about... Um, Cause he's still present and involved. Like he might, I, you know, whenever I hear him, like he's one of your biggest cheerleaders. He's not like someone who like pieced out of the church once the transition happened. Like it was a longer transition and he's still engaged. So tell me about that relationship and transition. Yeah. I mean, work, working with Pete, he's, uh, first of all, the man is a man of integrity. So whatever you're reading in all the books, he's truly living. And I've worked closely with him since 2008 and <clears throat> I mean, a guy who um, has this, a, a, a rigor of just intellectual integrity and um, he's going to be thinking things through like no one I've met before. He's thinking um, he's very pr- prudent is probably the word that comes to mind mm. when I think about Pete. He's, he's calculated. He's, um, yeah, prudent, uh, theologically adept. Um, he, and the big thing for him is he, he wants to see the scriptures lived. He wants to see, um, what we see in the stories of, of the new Testament and the old Testament. He wants to see people transformed by it. So working with him was a gift working for him was a gift. And in the transition, uh, you, you know, I don't know if there was a more, there could have been a more flawless, um, transition for us. It was four years in the making. Mm. Um, we brought in an outside consultant to help us with that. But uh, Pete was uh, so self-aware. That's the probably the biggest thing that made this work. Uh, wow. So self-aware in the process. He knew when his anxiety was coming. He recognized the immensity of this transition. Uh, we were totally transparent with the church in so many different ways. 
Uh, and in my eight years, I joke around, people say, come on, tell us the real story. What's, you know, was, was Pete a pain in the neck? Pete was probably a pain in the neck, probably twice in eight Mm. years. (laughs) And, you know, he got anxious and he called me and, and emotionally vomited on me. And I was like, I, dude, I didn't take the job for this. This is wrong. You know? Uh, so he probably did that two times in eight years. That's a pretty nice ratio there. Uh, and, and so, but working with him was fantastic. Uh, and, and yeah, incredibly humble, uh, repentant. I I can't speak any higher of Pete Mm. on ways that he's impacted my life. I'd love to, before I move on, maybe to another theme, one piece of advice that you learned from how Pete modeled the transition. Uh, so I'm thinking one piece of advice for the senior leader listening, who's probably approaching retirement. And then one piece of advice for the one who's succeeding the one who's coming up, like, how do we be great at passing the baton? And how do we be great at receiving the baton? What would you, what would you say for that? Oh, man. Um, what, what comes to mind, I, I mean, if, if I had more time, I'd probably give 10 things here. But uh, what, what comes to mind, Pete had a, and continues to have a profound understanding of limits as a mm. gift. And it's often the case that in church circles and many church, you know, just cultural circles, limits is a four letter word. It's, it's, it's something that to transcend, uh, something to break through, not something to embrace. And so I think Pete recognized his own limits as a leader. He recognized when his time was up. Uh, and so just that self-awareness. So I, I think any leader who's looking to pass the baton to the next generation uh, has to recognize his or her own limits uh, and as a gift and to steward that and cultivate that um, it, with the right timing. I mean, he was 57. Now I'm not, I'm not saying every lead pastor should do the same at 57 years old or 58 years old, but he had a deep sense. I've taken this church as far as I think I can take it. And I think someone else needs to step into it. Uh, and then uh, for someone stepping in, um, <clears throat> You know, I mean, the great thing I had was because Pete was my mentor, uh, I was in in many respects, I don't know, the word's not ruthlessly uh, introspective, but I, I mean, I have to live with a level of interiority in order to recognize the moments when I need to say yes to something that Pete might not say have said yes to. And when do I need to say no, because this is something that Pete would want me to pause on. So uh, over the past couple of years in, ter- in preaching about racism and preaching about politics, I've done things that Pete probably would not have done. Uh, and so I've had to recognize what is my own unique voice and calling mm. yet at the same time. What is the wisdom uh, from someone like Pete that I need to listen to. In short, it's really, when do I need to listen to Pete functioning as Jethro to Moses? And when do I need to not listen to Pete functioning as Saul to David, putting on his mm. armor? That's essential for the younger leader who's trying to step into a, a new role, especially with someone who's sticking around, That um, making that discerning decision. When is Pete Jethro to me and he's helping me? When is Pete Saul and in his anxiety, he's trying to put on an armor that doesn't fit me. Um, That's probably some of the greatest work that needs to happen for an incoming leader. Hmm. One of the things that I love about um, the whole body of work with emotionally healthy spirituality and then your book, The Deeply Formed Life, which I highly commend um, to everyone listening, is the invitation for every Christ follower 
but I'm reading it as a pastor, to look at their interior world. I remember doing Emotionally Healthy Leader as a book study with two other pastors, uh, three other pastors rather. We met on Thursday mornings early. And there was this one conversation where we were talking about what's happening in the interior world. And one of my friends said what I think a lot of us felt is like, I'm terrified to look inside because I don't know what I'm going to find. Yeah. And I realized that we can go years, decades, careers as followers of Jesus, but as pastors without actually like tending and doing like the interior world work. And um, I just would love to hear you speak a little bit to that because it's a big theme within the book, but it's also a theme of your leadership. And you speak to that as both part of why the transition went well was because of Pete's self-awareness, but then also you doing that, looking into that interior world. So I just love for you to speak to that for a little bit. And like, what does that even mean for a pastor to begin that work of tending to their yeah. interior world? Uh, these are great questions, Jason. And uh, first of all, you know, uh, to make some correlation with Pete's work, uh, one of the top signs of emotionally unhealthy spirituality that Pete uh, talks about is using God to run from God. And I pick mm. up on that in the deeply formed life where what I add is we often use God to run from ourselves. Uh, and, and both are very big problems uh, for pastors and for leaders. And I, I think in many ways we are, we are tr- because so many pastors are caregivers and love to serve people and uh, are always pouring out to actually take the time to look within is a daunting task, but it is, I think, Profoundly theological in nature, the theological gaps that we have are profound uh, because we have not located the interior life as a place where God longs to meet us, Hmm. transform us, and have us preach out of, lead out of, live out of. Uh, And so I I take it as, you know, if I'm going to look at it in, in, in three different categories, I'd look at it from like a biblical, a theological, and a formational way where uh, from a biblical perspective, when you look at the Psalms, uh, you see language of interiority, you see language of introspection, you see David speaking from a place of depth and self-awareness in the Psalms, search me, O God, see if there's any way of pain in me, any anxious thoughts and lead me in the way everlasting. We see biblically uh, words of examination that come up over and over again. Uh, Then theologically, I, I have this theological assumption that Jesus Christ wants to transform not just some facet of our lives, but every aspect of our lives, Mm. especially our interior life. And so he's not just about behavior modification. He's not just about guarding our eyes and make us making the right decisions. He wants to look at the fears, the anxieties, the idols, the values, the priorities that are uh, deep inside of us that are often inconsistent with the way of his kingdom. And when I look at it formationally, you know, to look within is really about three things. It's about integrity, integration, and love. By integrity, I'm talking about um, not just living something perfectly, but wrestling with something faithfully. That's what the internal interior examination, emotional health, whatever you want to call it, it is about integrity. How do I wrestle faithfully with what's happening on the inside? It's about uh, intersection. How do I hold on to the various parts of myself that I often have a hard time integrating uh, into worship, my my rageful self, my uh, grieving self, my anxious self. How do I hold these things together? So emotional health, interior examination is about intersection, but at its core, it's about love. 
it's it's how do I, I'm, I'm looking within, not for the sake of navel gazing, but for the sake of love. And how can I love my neighbor? How can I love God? How do I do it out of love for self? Uh, so looking within for me is profoundly uh, theological, formational, and, and, and biblical. And how does it look? What does it mean for us? I, I think at its core, uh, and we talk about this at New Life a lot in the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course, where uh, we, we talk about a skill called exploring the iceberg. And exploring the iceberg is so elementary, uh, but I've seen this particular skill trip up people with PhDs and uh, you know very successful business people because it's a stumbling block in its simplicity. Four very simple questions. What are you mad about? What are you sad about? What are you anxious about? What are you, mm. what are you glad about? And offering that to people to pastors, to leaders, to take the time to actually listen. Truly, what are you angry about? And can you bring that to God? What are you sad about? So often we're dealing with other people's sadness as pastors and leaders, other people's anger, other people's grief, that we feel like we don't have any capacity to look within. Uh, But I mean, I think our work must flow from that deep centered place. But for me, I I think it starts with a simple skill like that. Can you mm. name your anger with specificity, not with generalities, but with specificity? Can you name your grief, all the losses that you've experienced patiently? Can you name your fears and anxieties? Uh, you know, and can you name the joy as well that flows out of that? So mm. that's what comes to mind when I think about the interior life, emotional health, and leading out of that place. Hmm. I remember doing the Emotionally Healthy Leader and having this moment of reflection that was like, it was so small, but so profound. And what it was is just because we slowed down enough up until this point, I hadn't slowed down enough to do the work, you know, and we're, I was during that season trying to take more time to do those types of questions. What, what, and it was the prayer of examine really helped me in the evenings, yeah. uh, you know, tra- plotting the emotions of my day. And I just remember reflecting on this moment, walking past someone in the hallway and me saying hi, them kind of brushing me off. And any other day, like any other season of my life, I just would have never thought twice about it. Mm. But then because I was doing this practice of like types of questions you're saying, I just was like, oh, I was actually really put off there. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was like, I was actually kind of mad at that person. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, why? And then I realized like, this is so embarrassing to say, but I'm like, oh, I felt like my ego, like I felt like he didn't care about me. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, but like w- in a typical day, typical week to... There's no pause for reflection. And so then all of these things start feeding into my leadership, in my pastoral leadership, and then they leak out like acid in the worst places. Um, but the actual time to like ask those questions, it's really, it's a discipline to cultivate because you can't do that in less than 10 minutes. And while that's not a lot of time, it's a real thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what it does is it short circuits uh, and you know mitigates against the ways that those encounters that you talk about uh, turn into messages that turn into larger scripts that mm. now shape you sub- subconsciously. So now you're engaging the world from a particular center, not recognizing the forces that are inf- influencing the ways we uh, supervise, the way we lead, the way we preach, the way we talk about challenging issues. Uh, these things start building up. And next thing you know, we're living from all kinds of uh, ulterior scripts that are inconsistent with the way of Jesus. Hmm. 
could you slow it down a little bit? You, you, you did such a good job. But if if someone was to like pause this episode now and go, okay, I want to use that. You had four questions, anxious, sad, uh, mad, joyful, or something to that effect. To slow it down. What does that look like for us to even pause right now and go and do is that like, is it going for a walk? Is it sitting still? Like, could you, could you slow down that as help us design that into an exercise that anyone could do right now? Yeah, I, I think very practically, and I'll tell you what I do. I mean, this is a discipline that I have uh, nurtured over the years, uh, and in large part, thanks to the environment at New Life that we've had for a number of decades. But for me, it looks like a couple of things. I, I mean, it either looks like for me going for a walk or sitting right where I'm sitting right now. This is I'm in my bedroom. This is kind of like my prayer chair. And those four simple questions are helpful guides. I usually begin with three, four, five minutes of just silence. Um, you know, when my mind gets distracted, I, you know, I, I probably say the word, the phrase like, Lord, here I am, or the name Jesus, just to bring me back to the center of God's presence. Uh, and at that point, after I, I do that, that allows some of the material of the subconscious, that stuff that's so deep in my soul that I can't get at. I think that silence, which is you know, indispensable to this kind of life, allows some of the things that are happening deep beneath the iceberg to begin to surface a little bit. All the imaginary conversations that I've had with people. And if that person emails me, this is what I'm going to say to them. I start thinking about all. The, I'm not know, the I, only one that has that imaginary conversation. <laughs> I mean, I, I, today I'm walking today to the supermarket, you know, and I, and I remember, oh, I have a meeting with someone tomorrow that meeting is probably going to be a bit challenging and I'm already going into it. And if yeah. you say this, I'm going <laughs> to say that, you know, I'm, yeah. All yeah. I'm angry. You know, for me, it's Lord, those thoughts are breadcrumbs leading me to something deeper. Mm. How can I follow these breadcrumbs? And so part of it is uh, asking yourself, you know, what are you angry about? Uh, mm. it, it might, what happened this past week? Uh, what happened this past year? Uh, what happened this past decade? What happened when you were younger? Um, uh, the challenge, however, for some Christians is we have not given ourselves permission to be angry. And so th there's so much prep work that needs to get done theologically. Like it's okay to allow yourself to feel this kind of anger. It's okay to allow yourself to feel this kind of grief. But for me, it's usually going for a walk. It's sitting down. It's taking out a journal, taking out a pen and beginning to jog my memory a bit, asking the Holy Spirit to help me. Lord, Holy Spirit, uh, help me to uh, point out the things that are causing me to get stuck. Uh, and uh, I have a journal right in front of me of plenty of, I, I don't think you have to be an expert uh, in theology and spiritual formation to do this. I think having the Holy Spirit is plenty. Uh, mm. and if we open ourselves to God's grace in this, I think the Holy Spirit begins to give revelation and illumination to our lives. But, but the most important thing is it takes unhurried presence. Hmm. Like this stuff is not going to happen between Zoom meetings. I, I mean, we, we need to make the time to do it. And sometimes it happens in 10, sometimes in 20, uh, sometimes 30 minutes, but it's the unhurried pace hmm. presence that's really required here. And, and what do you do? Like, what does it mean to take, whether it's our anxiousness or a fear um, to God? Like, what does it look like not just to identify, but and what do we do with it? The two things that I do, uh, number one, I, I believe those moments are moments of union with God. Uh, and so I, I 
do believe that something profound is happening in prayer when we're able to take the material. You know, Ron Rollheiser has said that, you know, prayer very simply is lifting mind and heart to God. That's what prayer is. And mm. I think God wants us to share from the deepest places of our soul. So number one, it's an act of worship, this kind of prayer. There, there's nothing necessarily transactional about it. It's I'm opening myself to God. Uh, and for the sake of just opening myself to God, in the same way that I would open myself up to my wife or to a trusted friend, not to necessarily get anything out of it, but for the sake of relationship, for the deepening of our of our bond together. That's the one thing. The other thing, though, is and I'm glad you asked the question, because it's often the case that whenever anxiety surfaces, whenever anger surfaces, whenever grief surfaces, there's often these interior messages, messages that are really subterranean uh, and, and deep beneath the iceberg of our souls that are now um, uh, informing those feelings. And so, for example, you know, I have a meeting tomorrow with someone. I was feeling anxious and, and my anxiety, Lord, I'm so anxious. I don't want to just stop at the anxiety. What I want to begin to ask God and begin to plumb as well to my own self is what is the message that is now wrapping itself around me and causing mm. me to feel this anxiety. For me, for example, one of the messages whenever I feel anxiety, especially when there's disagreements in conversation is, I need someone to agree with me for me to be okay. You know, wow. or I need someone to like me for me to be okay. That is such a deep subterranean message that's now informing my anxiety. And if I can get to a place where I can now name those messages and in the name of Jesus, begin to see them what they are. I don't believe these messages theologically, but emotionally, I, I really do. How do I begin to now in the name of Jesus, through reflection, through contemplation, through journaling, through externalization and talking about this, begin to reframe those messages. Hmm. Uh, that kind of work I've done over the years and there's always another lurking message beneath the surface. We're like onions, you know, there's another layer that's deep there. But for me, it's lifting mind and heart to God when I'm naming my anxiety. It's an act of worship. Lord, I'm opening myself to you because I love you and I want to share life with you. Hmm. And Lord, can you now help me identify what is this underlying message, this underlying lie, this underlying script, this underlying story that is now fueling this? And how can you now help me to replace it with something more gospel oriented? Hmm. It's really helpful, like to to share something personal for me right now. I'm we just at our church went public with like a fundraising campaign for some new ministry in the area of the city and some a capital project. And it's just been a lot of not healthy emotion this last two weeks leading up to it and then sunday we went public and it's online and so it's like really disembodied and there's no feedback loop and so i've gone to god with that but then when you talk about this going to the script what just really clicked for me when you're sharing that is like the script beneath the surface that i haven't been talking to the lord about is that if people don't get on board with this i feel like they're not on board with me mm -hmm. and if people are put off by talking about money they're put off by me and actually, I want to be liked and affirmed. Right. And, and so, and then, it, and then it becomes really easy. Like, of course, the, the gospel response to that is like, I'm liked and affirmed by the most important voice in the world. Yeah. But it's really liberating, man. And I just, I just think I, 
I, and I'm just saying this on behalf of a lot of people listening, if we don't slow down to do the work, mm-hmm. that, that builds up, you know? And yeah. And you said it, you just, Jason, you said it perfectly. And I thank you. You gave your listeners just a gift right there. And I think part of it, it this is not just a cognitive shift. Uh, this is, you know, it's not, okay, now what does, what does the gospel say about me? Okay, let me, let me get that in my brain. This is, this is deeper than just a shift in perspective, which is why so much of this needs to be externalized. There's this counter instinctual actions that's, that are often required to, to begin to free ourselves from these messages. In my case, <clears throat> it's I need to now, whenever I get down this, going down this loop, <clears throat> and this message is deep down in my soul and is wrapping itself around me. My the gravitational pull is for me to abs- be absorbed in it myself, and I go down a hole, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm angry and I'm sad about it. <clears throat> what has helped to circumvent all of that is doing something c- counterinstinctual for me, which is letting other people in, mm-hmm. letting my wife in. I remember the first day. Man, we're not talking a long time ago, maybe four four years ago or so when I began to really do this regularly. Whenever anxiety came in and I said to my wife, hey, honey, can I just share some anxiety that I'm feeling right now? And um, the message that's really going in, you know, circling in my soul. And what I found was beyond just catharsis, emotional catharsis, and me being now bonded even more to my wife, you know, her first response was, finally, you know, (laughs) you're letting me in. Um, There was something mystical as well, man, that it's hard to explain, that that it's a meeting place with God when we're able Mm. to offer ourselves in that way with vulnerability and humility and openness. The Holy Spirit breathes on those things Mm. and offers freedom. So, uh, but part of it is, not is just not cognitive. So much of this is relational. It's community. It's emotional, uh, but it does require some counter instinctual acts on our, you know, for us to move in that direction. Hmm. This is a really intense time to be a pastor. It's not the hardest time in history. I think there's been other moments, but at least for our generation, there's a sense by which, because of COVID, because of political implications. Um, important but tense conversations on race, among other things. The understanding how to lead in this time is extremely challenging and a bit disorienting as a pastor. And I just would love to hear your reflections as your pastor in a very diverse church in a global city in this time and how you're understanding your role as a pastor and your responsibility to the people and to those you lead. Yeah, it feels to me, you know, I, I mentioned before our call, you know, we're living in a CPR world. That's how I've been calling it, you know, a COVID politically hostile racial injustice. You know, it's that CPR world where we're having a hard time breathing and uh, there's some heart issues going on here. I, I think my task and, and this for my church, I think like for everyone else's church has been the most difficult year in memory. I can't recall any other time in our church over the 34 years that we've been in existence as a congregation where we've had this level of conflict, tension, hostile forces externally and within. Uh, It's been very clear to me what my job is as a pastor. My job as a pastor is to be a non-anxious presence. That's Mm. the greatest gift I give my community. And to that end, uh, what I have been 
studying a lot and reflecting on a lot and working with our leadership team through is this notion of differentiation, which really emotionally healthy spirituality, emotionally healthy discipleship really gets at this a lot. Uh, and emotionally healthy discipleship really flows out of uh, much out of family systems theory. And in family systems theory, we have this idea of differentiation. For me, to be a leader and a pastor in this moment requires us to be growing in differentiation. My definition of differentiation is this. It is um, <clears throat> it's remaining close and curious to God, to myself, and to others in times of high anxiety. That's my go-to definition, remaining close and curious to God, to myself and to others in times of high anxiety and resisting the polar opposite pull of fusing into someone or cutting off from someone. Mm. That is the work of pastoring, especially in this particular moment. How do I remain close to God in prayer and in curiosity, Lord, what are you doing? How do I remain close to myself? What, Lord, what is happening within me? What are the triggers? What are the, the, the reactivity, the emotionality that's happening within me? How do I stay close and curious to others uh, that I disagree with politically, that I disagree with in terms of socially, theologically, uh, trying to get beneath the surface, asking them questions, becoming curious, especially in times of high anxiety. And I'll give you one example of how we we worked this out as a church. It had nothing to do with me, honestly, uh, but it had to do with the larger people in our church, the uh, you know surrounding leaders in our church who took this message seriously. Two weeks before the election last year, uh, about a month before that, one of our assistant pastors emailed me and said, hey, Rich, I have a great idea. How about two weeks before the election, we put together this online Zoom forum on the election, and let's have two people in our church One's voting for Trump, the other's voting for Biden. Let's have them have a conversation for about an hour on why they're voting each, you know, for each candidate. And what do you think about that? And, you know, I'm, you know, with, with great faith, I said, no, we're not going to do that. Are you kidding me? Uh, and so that was my initial response, that email, like, this is a disaster waiting to happen. I could imagine the Zoom, convers- you know, the chat section in the Zoom, this is going to be a disaster. And initially I just thought, no, I don't know. And she said, well, we should get two elders to do it. I said, even worse, you know, uh, two elders to have this conversation. And after some more conversation with her, I decided, let's have the event. Wow. Because I think it was modeling something. And you know what? Two weeks beforehand, we had a 50-something-year-old Korean-American man who was voting for Trump and a 60-something-year-old Puerto Rican man who was voting for Biden. And this was going to be moderated by a, a millennial African-American man. Uh, and that's how we roll in Queens over here. And I would give, you know, a little reflection for 10 minutes. And then they would take the conversation for another 30 to 40 minutes. And uh, were there cringeworthy moments? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> did the chat section get a little crazy from time to time? Uh, oh, yeah. But those who modeled such curiosity. Hmm and such presence um, that we were modeling something. And I didn't, I mean, I was thinking this is gonna go bad. And certainly there's some significant disagreements that each of the elders had and that I had with you know, the elders and such. But I think what we were modeling for the church is 
<clears throat> not just civility, but love. Hmm. Uh, what does it mean to be close to God, curious with God and to myself and to others in times of high anxiety? But this requires non-anxious presence. And I think that's what the greatest gift that pastors offer, moving beyond reactivity, emotionality, to being truly uh, present to ourselves, to God, and to others. That's the greatest gift in this moment. Hmm. You recently shared at uh, a Q, Q Ideas Cultural Summit, um, and you made a distinction between, you were talking about this idea of, of pastoral work and celebrity culture, and you made a distinction between celebrity and celebrityism. I just love to hear, uh, and we'll link in the show notes to the clip from Q so people can watch the whole thing. But just, I just think it's a really important conversation uh, for us to be having, especially in a social media world where, you know, as a pastor, you're operating on multiple fronts. It's not just before your congregation, it's before other pastors and other people in a way that's unique to our time. Mm-hmm. And just so value your reflections. I'd love for you to share a little bit about that. Yeah, the distinction I'm trying to make, first of all, is that, you know, celebrity is different from celebrityism, first of all. And um, in that talk, I alluded to Jesus being a household name. Everyone knew Jesus. Uh, Celebrity is often thrust onto people. Uh, You know, there's oftentimes where people just become celebrities, not because of nothing of their doing, you know, just they are now really well known for X amount of reasons or what have you. Uh, and so I think, you know, people would have asked Jesus to sign his, sign their tunic, you know, or their parchment paper, you know, uh, as after he heals them. Uh, that's the nature of celebrity. Celebrityism is something that's much more insidious, much more destructive. Uh, and it really, it's, it's, it's marked by entitlement. Mm. Uh, it's marked by a misuse of power. Uh, it's, it's marked by elitism. It's marked by depersonalization. Uh, and when I look at the church, this is, I, I think, mostly um, the, the dynamic that, that nurtures and cultivates the environment that nurtures and cultivates celebrityism is often in larger churches because of the nature of the church. But this is not just a megachurch problem. Hmm. Uh, I've seen all kinds of churches of all kinds of sizes with people who take themselves way too seriously and have bought into this kind of celebrityism, uh, and so what I I talk about at New Life, one of the ways that that was they were trying to root that out of we didn't have language for that, but I think it was just part and parcel of the culture of New Life is when I became a pastor on staff, you know, one of the first things that I had to stop doing on Sundays was parking in the church parking lot, uh, and in Queens, you know, we have fifteen hundred people who come to New Life, we have about fifty parking spots. Uh, I'm not, I don't get one of those parking spots. And I remember, uh, hearing I'm not getting a part. And I was so like puzzled and upset. Like, shouldn't the pastor get a parking spot? The mega church I came from, I mean, they were parking the pastor's car. They did not only had a parking spot. He dropped it off and somebody picked it up and parked it for him. If I can't get that, at least can I get a parking spot? But they were ruining that. <laughs> out of me and out of our culture like no we're we're going to lead the way here and 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 serving and certainly that can go to the opposite extreme where pastors are you know treated like crap yeah 
and and they're, they're not being served and, and adequately cared for and such. Uh, but uh, the opposite of that is that celebrityism, which is marked by that kind of entitlement. Uh, you know, who are the people? What are the tasks that are beneath you? That's really a question of celebrityism uh, and humility. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm happy to explore more, Jason, but that's the thrust of it. Mm. Uh, celebrityism is marked by entitlement and uh, what applies to you doesn't apply to me. And mm. I'd be lying to you if I told you that does that doesn't lurk inside of me because it does. But I need a I need an environment and a culture uh, that protects me from me. Hmm. What else can we do as 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 younger leaders to protect our hearts and our teams from that kind of culture? I I, I do think it it does require inviting. This is a hard thing because. Um, uh, to experience feedback, criticism, uh, it can be very painful. And I, I, I mean, I've been in this role, like I said, eight years. The first four or five years, uh, whenever elders would review my, you know, give me my annual review, it was always a very painful. And they'd say, Rich, you're doing fantastic. This is great. Here are a couple of areas that we're looking at. And those two areas would just crush me. Mm-hmm. And it took a mm-hmm. long time before I began to see all that feedback in a different light without the level of insecurity that I was carrying. But I think it it does require um, conscious invitation within the church and outside the church. You know, some pastors, it's very easy to invite outside perspective and feedback and not ask for that internally. what that does, it, it keeps us at a very safe distance because the people from outside of us, they're not working with us. Uh, they don't know what it's like to actually be with us on a day-to-day basis. The people I work with are the people. So um, I think whether it's elders, whether it's a pastoral team, having a space where you can be honest, um, and this is not groundbreaking stuff here, but I think we need it internally and externally. Um, you know, Who can we receive criticism from, feedback from, encouragement from. But often, oftentimes it, it requires us to take the initiative as pastors uh, in order to do that. Uh, additionally, uh, you know, I, I do think it requires uh, seasonally um, the board or whomever to get access to a spouse as well. Uh, mm. Because the spouse of the pastor knows a whole lot more than everyone else on what the true state of affairs are. Uh, and so creating space where the spouse can say, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what life is like in our home. Um, I think can go a long way in getting through some of the, uh, the stuff in a very poignant, uh, you know, pointed way. Uh, that's a couple of thoughts that just come to mm. mind though. I appreciate it so much. Uh, I've appreciated this whole conversation and uh, so excited for people to get their hands on a deeply formed life. Some of the themes you deal with in here around uh, racial reconciliation and divided world, sexual wholeness. Um, it, it's it's incredible, man. Thank you so much for the work you've done, uh, for sharing time with us today. We are so grateful for your time. Thank you, Jason. Uh, love the conversation and um, uh, we'll do it again sometime.
Thanks again to Rich for joining us today. If you'd like to order his most recent book, A Deeply Formed Life, you can find that wherever books are sold. In two weeks' time, we will be sharing a conversation with Sid Coop. We just love Sid. Sid is the leader of an organization called the Youth Worker Community, which is doing incredible work across Canada to encourage and equip youth workers. He's been involved in full-time youth ministry for over 20 years, and we really wouldn't throw this word around lightly, but Sid truly is an expert in youth ministry. We're excited to have him with us. Okay, that's all for me. Bye for now, and we hope to see you soon.